Welcome to another great message at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. Oh, it is so good to be here. Why don't you go ahead and take a seat this morning? Man, what an honor to be here at all, let alone on such a momentous day, heart for the house and commissioning brands and all the things that are happening. Uh, I, notice, I notice that you asked people to predict the score, but you didn't require them to predict a win, which I thought was a dangerous step. I don't know that anyone will get anything if they predict a loss and they're correct, right? Um, so yeah, predict, predict in faith, people, come on. Uh, but I'm just so honored to be here. Um, and uh, honestly, I've been looking forward to this for such a long time. Um, and uh, who loves your pastors? Adrian and Lee are amazing people. Honored to get to know them even better. We've been connected for a few years now, particularly Adrian and I, and the chance to come. And I've been, we've been, I've been anticipating this. And so I bring greetings from New York. I spent the last week uh, on the Eswatini side with our um, church up there, which began as a beautiful community center in the middle of the town. There, I think last year, 40 different organizations used the space that we rented right in the heart of the city from city council to NGOs and churches, and it's making a real difference there. And then God, by His grace, birthed a church out of that, which is just doing our uh, good for the city, and uh, it was such a joy to be there with them. And, uh, and I, just, I love what God is doing across Southern Africa, and i um, thankful uh, for the ARC and the family, the Association of Related Churches that have been helping us that side, and um, what a great day to be alive, amen? Just a great day to be alive. And I, I want to encourage you. I believe today is a significant day. Uh, I believe it's no coincidence that God, in His providence, really after a couple of years of trying to find the right date for me to come today of all days, I think that there might just be a word in season for you. And there might just be a word in season for the church as a whole. I know we just put the photo of my family up there, but I miss them. Can we put that back up again? <laughs> These are, this is my wife, Andy, who looks like she's glowing with the presence of the Lord. It's just the sunset, but it's perfectly executed. Ah, <laughs> and my four kids, Ezekiel uh, is 14, Jesse's 12, Finley Grace, our little princess, is 11, and Sam, our only born and raised New Yorker. The other three were all born in Australia before we moved to plant the church, but he is full of beans, that one, number four. And, um, and so that, that's our family um, that God called to New York City. Coming up uh, next year, next spring, it'll be 10 years since we moved to the city. And uh, that photo there actually was taken on our sabbatical. We took two months to unplug, recharge, refresh, draw near to God and to each other this summer in London. And uh, actually on the eve of planting a Liberty community there. But we didn't do any work, didn't check my email didn't do anything, just, just to love on God and on each other, and, um, and I believe God is all over that, that God is for us, amen, and if He is for us, who can be against us? So I, um, I this morning, I, I want to bring to you a word that's fresh for me, it's been important in all that God has done in and through our church, and that I think could be a pivotal word for this season for where Anchor Joburg is right now. If you want a title for the message this morning, I would, I would give it this title. I would call it All the Believers. All the Believers. Liberty Church um, started, well, here's the thing. When God called us to New York, this might encourage some of you that are pioneering something right now. 
when he called us to New York City to plant a church, A, we'd never been there, which is fantastic. My wife is from America, but she's from Spokane, Washington, which is clear on the other coast and not at all like New York. We met and, and married after meeting in Bible college, lived together, you know, 10 years of marriage in Australia, three kids, and then God begins to speak to us about a church in New York. But the real challenge was we only knew two people in New York. And actually, as well, I'm glad we didn't know this when we answered the call of God, neither of them even came to our church one time, the two people that we actually did know in New York. It doesn't sound like a great setup for a church plant, does it? But God, I think one of my life scriptures is God chooses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Does anybody else feel like that might be your life scripture? Um, I just thank God that he has grace upon grace, great grace, amen, to plant churches. And so we stepped out in faith, moved to the city, but of course God in his wisdom knew that although we hardly knew a soul in New York, Many people that we knew knew people in New York, and so we began to gather them. In fact, I have a picture of our very first Liberty Church gathering. You're going to be blown away. Look at the crowds. Can we put up that? Look at them all. That, that's, it was really important at the beginning to count our kids because they were a very high percentage of the church. <laughs> but that's us in the summer. That's, that's the whole church. I mean, I'm not kidding. That is the whole church. When we first began, we gathered around that's just a picnic table in Central Park. We didn't know it. We, you know, as Adrian said, I'd been part of Hillsong, and that was a wonderful journey, but we didn't know the first thing about planting a church if it wasn't that. So we're like, God, what do we do? How do you plant a church? Actually, the first time, I was telling these guys the story, the first time we visited New York, we didn't, never got to have the tourist experience of New York. The first time we went, we went as church planters. So when we stood in Times Square, we cried. <laughs> Because we are so overwhelmed, like, everybody's, like, taking selfies, and we're like, oh, God, what are you doing to us? Where do you even start? I mean, I wish I was exaggerating. Like, actually, my wife said that night when we went back to the hotel room, she said, do we have to do this? <laughs> now, she's got a gift of faith, so you know when she feels like that. I mean, the overwhelm was a real thing. Where do you start? Well, we started there, and we started with the scripture I'm going to preach from today. We figured, well... If we're going to plant a church, let's go back to where it all started. Let's look at the book of Acts and the birth of the early church. The context of what I'm about to read, you know, Jesus has died and resurrected, appeared to many, the disciples, he's ascended, it's like puberty sitting, he's he's ascended to heaven, and and then as promised, the Holy Spirit has come at Pentecost, the fire of God has fallen, they're spoken in tongues, you know, he said they would receive power in order to be witnesses. What does the early church do? With this power and the revelation of the risen King, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47, it says this. What did they do with all this? It says they devoted themselves. By the way, you could preach a message on that. They devoted themselves. Seems to me the early church had an internal motivation. Sometimes these days, you know, we're looking to everybody else. I want you to inspire me, refresh me, feed me, motivate me. And look, there's a place for that. But the early church devoted themselves to what? To the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many signs and wonders performed by the apostles. And listen, here's where the title comes from. All the believers. This is the thing I circled in my Bible just a few months ago that started me meditating on this thought about what was unique, what was special, what we, I think in some cases, almost need to get back to in the very pure fabric of the church. What was special about the early church? All the believers, it says. 
were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. That's a high bar. If we had church every day, can you imagine? Every day. Mind you, give it up for the team who were here in the middle of the night setting up last night. Come on. They're running on coffee and springbok fever right now, <laughs> but they're doing very well. <laughs> and it says, it says they broke bread in their homes, ate together. They ate together. That's my favorite bit. With glad and sincere hearts, he says, as the 21 days of the Daniel fast comes. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And it says, listen, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You know, as a pastor, I love that last phrase. I want to proclaim that last phrase. And the Lord added to their number daily. Come on, Lord, those who are being saved. But, you know, I believe the context, the culture, the ecosystem in which this multiplication occurred is in these verses. The birth of the early church is powerful, but it's pure. It's uncomplicated. It's breathtaking in its unity and its simplicity. The phrase that grabbed my heart, though, was all the believers. In other words, 100% engagement. No spectators. That's different, isn't it? No spectators. They devoted themselves. By the way, notice they devoted themselves to, the, to teaching and to fellowship. I don't know if it's true in South Africa like it is in uh, my new nation. But in the U.S., many people are still, that would call themselves followers of Jesus, are still devoted to the teaching, but not so much to the fellowship. So they've got me, myself, and I, church, and they're like downloading their Joel Osteen and their Stephen Furtick and doing, you know what I mean, church in their PJs with themselves on Sunday. And they're, they're still, because we live in a day of technology, and thank God for it, they've got the world-class teaching at their fingertips. And if the only goal of being a Christian was to be fed, 10 out of 10, right? Trouble is, it's supposed to be mutual. It's supposed to be give and take. We're supposed to be not only consumers, but also contributors, that's why I believe it's so important that we remain in fellowship, amen? That we have the place where iron and, um, can sharpen iron. I think we see so much consumerism in the modern church, but it wasn't the way in the early church. By the way, it also says that they were together. This word together is in there a lot, that they shared and had in common. There's a, a unity there. By definition, the early church was relational. It was a, a community. And they gathered not only in the temple courts, but also in homes. You know, what, what, what we call connect groups here at Anchor. It's important. It wasn't just, hey, see you next Sunday. But there was a sense of doing life together, discipleship. They were breaking bread. Breaking bread's mentioned twice, which I'm really appreciative of. I don't know if you've ever heard of the book, The Five Love Languages. You know, there's physical touch and words of affirmation. My contention is that there are six because I think food is a love language. Can I get a witness? There's a lot of people in here. I can sense it. Where food is your love language. I shouldn't be bringing all this up right before the Daniel fast. I apologize if this is bad for signups. Um, but the meal, the table, they're part of the fabric of the early church. It wasn't only the temple expression, the service, so to speak, but it was also the home expression, life on life, conversation. The early church was not dominated by spectators and a handful of professionals like the modern church can tend to be. And by the way, don't forget, while it says all the believers, meanwhile, it's going to be still illegal for 300 more years to be a follower of Jesus. And yet they're passionate. They're all in. In other words, it cost them something. It meant something to say, I am, as they used to call it, a follower of the way 
or later Christians, as society would call them. So what are we going to do in order to live in this kind of passion and engagement as, as the church? If we're going to live in an all-the-believers kind of way at Anchor, if you're taking notes this morning, I, I want to give you a couple of encouragements. Maybe challenge us a little to think about the way we think about ourselves and our place in what God is doing here. Number one, if you're taking notes, is we are the church. We are the church. We, we are the church. If we're going to get back to the essence of this, I believe we've got to actually strip back, in a lot of cases, some misunderstanding that's been kind of layered in over the years since this all began. I heard somebody use an analogy recently. It's like purchasing a beautiful old home, but you've got to strip back layers and layers of different paints and lacquers and things to get back to the original beautiful hardwood that's almost been long forgotten, buried beneath. I, I believe the church in some ways is a little like that. We're centuries, millennia of even good intentions painted over the top of what God really intended. Sometimes distract us from what was actually underneath all of that. And if you'd allow me, I want to show you how even something as simple as a translation choice has led to so much misunderstanding. In Matthew chapter 16, it's a very famous verse. Matthew 16, verse 18 in the NIV translation. It says, this is Jesus speaking. Peter has just shared the revelation because Jesus said, who do people say I am? And the answers are all over the map, but Peter gets it right. You're the Christ, the Messiah. Son of the living God, you, you're, the, you're the one that we've been waiting for, in essence. And Jesus says, he says, great. Now, you've told me correctly who I am. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. But he says, and I will tell you. Now he's revealing to Peter something of who he really is. He says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or hell, will not overcome it. A lot of times when we read this verse, we focus on Peter, because it's sort of a word play that's happening here. He was Simon. Now he's Peter. Peter means kind of like little rock. And, and Jesus is, is in some ways saying, yes, you're going to be one of the pillars of the church. But the bigger thing is not that he was going to build the church on Peter, little rock, Petros. But actually the bigger thing is I'm going to build on that revelation that you just shared that I am in fact the Christ, the, the one. But what we sometimes miss in all of this is the word church because we already assume we know what it means. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. The word church here, and I'm going to show you why I believe this, is better translated for English. It's better translated gathering or community. But when we say church, sadly, many people in our society, if you went out and said, you know, what's a church or what's the church, people are going to tell you it's a building. This, this word here is ecclesia, Greek word, ecclesia. 118 times this word appears in the New Testament. And the King James Version, one of the original foundational English translations, took this word, Ecclesia, and translated it to the word church 115 out of 118 times. You think, boy, this is getting really technical. Go, stay with me a minute. I'm going somewhere with this. Only three times they translated it assembly. But let me just show you what Ecclesia is. I'm not going to read this verbatim, but Understand, when Jesus said this, the original hearer of this Greek word thought something completely different than the modern sort of societal person would think. When we say church and they think building, Jesus says, I will build my ecclesia. What was that? It's a gathering of citizens called out from their homes, an assembly of the people in a public place, the assembly of the Israelites, any gathering or throng of men. Next slide. 
in a Christian sense. It says, an assembly of Christians gathered for worship, a company of Christians hoping for eternal salvation. On it goes. There is literally not one sub-definition of this word that has anything to do with buildings or a place. Every definition of the word ecclesia is about people. We are the church. And the church can have a building and gather in a place, but the church at its core is this. It is the ecclesia, the assembly, the community, the gathering of all those who gather in Christ's name. Why does this matter so much? Because when Jesus says, I will build my church, he was not announcing a building program or a capital campaign. I will build my buildings and the gates of hell will not prevail against him. Is that what Jesus was saying? Come on, go with me, right? No, he was saying, I'm going to gather. I'm going to build this gathering. I'm going to build this community. And hell will not prevail against it. So the word church actually was introduced in the English translation stage. They were reaching for a word to convey what Jesus, and they actually kind of made up a word. It's actually a, it's actually a hybrid of a German word, Kirk, and a, a Celtic, a Celtic word, Cirque. Both of them meaning a physical place of worship, usually in a circle, and usually pagan. That was an unfortunate choice. That was the word. So what they did in the minds of the English reader, suddenly in comes this idea of a place, a building, a thing. And there's nothing wrong with having buildings. But I've noticed there's actually something that happens in the body of Christ that oftentimes there's no relationship between owning a building and the growth of the church. In fact, oftentimes the church, just look at the underground church in China as a great example where it's illegal to own a building, goes viral. And other places, even the most beautiful buildings, sadly, and this is sad, around the world, some of the most beautiful, historic, landmark church buildings, in fact, devoid of worship and the power and the presence of God, just tourist attractions now. Nothing wrong with having buildings. Man, we believe in to buy a building up in Manzini on the other side. I believe it would be a stake in the ground, and amen to that. But we are not pinning our hopes on being a real church when we have a building, amen? That's not at all what it's about. We are the church. So in that sense, I'm going to push this a little further. We don't just go to church. We are the church. That's a big difference, right? In other words, you're still the church tomorrow, not when you're just in this beautiful facility that we're blessed to be part of here today, but you're the church Monday, wherever God has you. In fact, in New York, we've used some weird and wonderful venues, I'll tell you that. One of, our, one of our first venue, actually, when we launched the church was, it sounds glamorous, the Tribeca of um, Cinemas. It's where Robert De Niro launched the Tribeca Film Festival back in the day. But I tell you, it basically smelled like beer and vomit every week. We, in America, they have this air freshener called Febreze, which was our friend. We had a big Febreze budget to try and make the kids' spaces not smell like vomit every week. And I remember looking up as I preached my first message, and, you know, it's a little like a dining room space, basically. And uh, at the back, there's a bar and a big lit up sign, liquors. <laughs> it's like that'll sort out the uptight people right out of the gates. And, uh, but it's perfect, right? And God, it, it almost his sense of humor over the years. I mean, we've used what is basically the Atheist Society of New York, true story. <laughs> like a whole monument, even stained glass windows to famous humanists in history. And oh, goodness. We've used some, you know, the, some of the places that God has called us movie theaters. And, but you know what? It doesn't matter where we gather. I mean, praise God for where we gather, but wherever we are, where two or more are gathered, there he is in the midst. That's what God says, amen? So the church is a people, not a place. That's my point. It's a people, not a place. It's a body, not a building. It's a movement, 
not a monument. So the first thing we've got to get deep in our hearts, if we're going to live this all the believers kind of revelation here today in 2019, is that we are the church. And the second is that we are all priests. This might get a little uncomfortable. You're right with that in church this morning? I think this is a little foreign to us, even if we theologically believe it, because we've been maybe around church for a while. I think we don't live this revelation. It comes from 1 Peter 2. It says, uh, verses 1 to 5, four, it's, uh, 1 to 5 first, it says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. He says, like newborn babies crave spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up into your salvation, now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. We sang that this morning, didn't we? So good to me, amen? Now that you've tasted that the Lord is good, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built, listen to this, you are being built into a spiritual house to be what? A holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. A few verses later, in case people think this is a typo or that, that the writer here is mistaken, because this is foreign to them. What do you mean we are a priesthood, let alone a royal priesthood? The priesthood had always been a particular people, a particular family line, and, and they were the only ones that got to do these things that priests do, offering sacrifices and so on, going into the holy places. But again, the writer, a few verses later in verse 9, says, you, listen, are a chosen people. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. You know, I, I look at verse 9 there, and I think it's clear from the verses either side when he says that you are a royal priesthood, that he's talking to everyone. I mean, he just got done talking about newborns, craving spiritual milk. I mean, he's saying this is to everyone, everywhere, that would call themselves a follower of Christ. Right from the beginning, he is forming you like living stones, he said, into a royal priesthood, a chosen people, a holy nation. So guess what? You are part of the priesthood. I don't know if this is new information for you this morning. I bet if I had a show of hands before making this point, how many here are priests? I bet not many hands would have gone up, right? But the scripture is teaching us plainly that God considers you a royal priesthood. And I get why we're uncomfortable with that. Because if you're anything like me and you have an ounce of self-awareness, you think, I am not qualified. Does anybody else feel just a little bit? I mean, I don't have a show of hands or anything, but do you ever feel like me, a priest? That doesn't, that's not how I imagine myself. God, could you really use me? And you know what? To be honest, if you read the Bible from cover to cover, you're going to discover a lot of the people that God used. In fact, more often than not, he used the ones that felt unqualified, like Isaiah, who said, I'm a man of unclean lips, or Timothy, who thought he was too young. Or, I mean, again and again, Moses, I, I can't speak properly. All through Scripture, you see, God uses those that seem unlikely, frankly, but are willing to be used by him, a royal priesthood. Martin Luther said this. Martin Luther, I mean, he basically kicked off the Reformation and the birth of the Protestant church 
So this is a long time ago, and he said this, then, this word priest should become as common as the word Christian. How many think we've still got a lot of work to do on Martin Luther's wish that we would see ourselves not merely as Christians, but also as priests centuries later? I don't know that that has improved one bit. Dr. Art Lindsley, who, uh, who wrote a book called Unpacking the Priesthood of All Believers, he's, he refers to this quote. He says, when Luther referred to the priesthood of all believers, he was maintaining that the plowboy and the milkmaid could do priestly work. In fact, their plowing and milking was priestly work. Do you understand what he's getting at here? Not this artificial separation which doesn't exist in Scripture between the so-called secular and the sacred, but he's saying what you do. In fact, the Scripture says, let me pause there for a second, whatever your, your hand finds to do, do it with all your heart, listen, as unto the Lord, right? So whatever it happens to be that you're doing this morning, as Adrian already made the point in the ordination moment here, Ephesians 4 says that is as unto the Lord as you're ministering. He says there, plowing and milking was priestly work. There was no hierarchy where the priesthood was a, quote, vac vocation. <laughs> vacation, I wish. Yeah, where the priesthood was a vocation and milking the cow was not. No, both were tasks that God called his followers to do, each according to their gifts. And this had enormous implications for how Christians live their daily lives. Theologians would call this, this basically the theology of the priesthood of all believers. And you know what? I think it's one of the most missed and overlooked revelations of the modern church. God has called you to a priesthood. In other words, all those things that you see in the Old Testament, going before God in prayer and intercession offering, sacrifices and communing with God is your portion. Amen? Number three, we all have a ministry. We all have a ministry. I was almost going to cut this point because Basically, Adrian already made this point and read the same scripture. It's perfect. It's synced up perfectly. Ephesians 4, this is what it says. And it's this really, this passage here is speaking to both our universal and our personal callings or primary, secondary callings. It comes from Ephesians 4. I'm going to read it though in the New Living Translation just to mix it up. This is what it says. It says, uh, Ephesians 4, I'll start in verse 1. It says, this is Paul writing. He says, I, a prisoner for the serving the Lord, Beg you live a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. This is the universal calling. This is what applies to every one of us. He says, be humble and gentle, patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace, for there is, listen, one body, one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, in all, and living through all. Then it says, the pivot here is verse 7. However, he has given each one of us a special gift or a special grace through the generosity of Christ. So first he lays this foundation priesthood of all believers, this common calling that everyone who would follow after Christ should share. But a few verses later, he speaks to what that gift or grace is. And this is found in verse 11. He says, now these are the gifts or the graces that Christ gave the church. It says the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, pastors and teachers, and their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of the Son of God that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full 
standard of Christ. You know, the point that Paul is making here is that all at once we are one, and yet we are diverse in our gifts and our talents. This is really about the mobilization of the church. What I'm doing right now, as Adrian already said, is should not be doing ministry. Really what this should be is to equip the saints. In other words, when God calls these giftings, he calls them not to do the ministry. In fact, I have a, a pastor friend who said, he tells his staff, if I catch you doing ministry, you're fired. And the point he's trying to make is, don't do the ministry, equip others, multiply yourselves. The saints are supposed to do the work of the ministry. But let's be honest, in the modern church, oftentimes that's not how it really looks and works. Oftentimes in the modern church, a few people do the ministry and everybody else follows them on Instagram. A few people do the ministry and everyone gives them a round of applause because they're so talented, right? Why, and we all kind of excuse ourselves and go back to our daily lives and I'll see you next Sunday. Amen? That's not the thing. Ephesians 4 is getting at the idea that there is no separation, this idea of clergy and laity know that we all have a ministry. We all have a ministry. And you, you know, if I, again, if I had a show of hands and said before making this point, who here is in the ministry? Who here has a ministry? Probably not that many of us would identify with that statement. But do you know what it means to minister? To minister means to meet a need. So if I phrase the question differently, how many do you believe God is using you to meet a need right where you are? Then hopefully every one of us would say, that's me. That's your ministry. Now, your, your ministry has an expression here on Sunday. Amen to joining teams and doing things, but your ministry has an expression from Sunday to Sunday. Amen? God doesn't just care about an hour and a half or whatever on a Sunday, and then the rest of our lives is not holy or sacred somehow. No, all of it as unto the Lord. What needs is God calling you to meet? You have a ministry. Welcome to the ministry, church. This is exciting, huh? We should have an ordination for all of you next. <laughs> We just sang it out, like we love the words, make me a vessel, make me an offering. Jesus, bring new wine out of me. What does that mean? God, I'm pouring myself out. I'm pouring what you're doing in me out as an offering, as an offering to my community. Yeah, there's places that you go. There are people that you know that you are literally the hands and feet of Jesus there. Places that your pastors perhaps don't even have the access or the relationship, but you you are the church there. You are the light, the salt. Amen. You are. Out of that conviction, you know, we launched a ministry in our church called Visionaries for the business community of our church, which, to be honest, is 99% of our church because we want them to recognize the intersection between their faith and their profession. Amen. Their faith and their work. And we're going to be launching a midweek service shortly for the artist and the you know, performing arts community, which is huge in New York. People on Broadway and helping them intersect their faith with their works. Everyday missionaries. I heard somebody say it this way. I loved it. Last year, I heard somebody at a conference say that we have to shift the conversation in the church from, we can do it, you can help, to, you can do it, we can help. That's a profound reversal of thinking that we would not only see ourselves, I know for me as a pastor, it's deeply challenging. And of course, we're called to set vision, set direction, call the greatness out of people. But just as much as that, if not more so, to come alongside and say, what is God doing in you? And how can we as the church help you get there? Let me give you one more this morning before my time is gone, is that we are one body. We're one body. 
We are the church. We're all priests. We all have a ministry. But listen, we're also one body. Ephesians 4, just reading on from where I left off, it says, it says then when we, do, when we do what was read about, we, we embrace the oneness, one body, one king, one church. When we, when, we, when we embrace that gifting, the scripture says, then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We won't be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, listen, we will speak the truth in love. Truth in love. Man, that's a message for the church today. Truth and love. We need them both. You know, if there's no love, people don't receive the truth because love builds a bridge for the truth. On the other hand, if all we have is love, which is a popular message these days, and there's no truth, I don't believe in the end it's real love unless it's followed up by the truth of God. He says, speaking the truth in love, we will grow in every way more and more like Christ who is the head of what? His body, the church. His body, we are his body. The church, the ecclesia. He says he makes the whole body fit together perfectly. And listen, as each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. The NIV translation of that verse says, from him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love. Listen, as each part does its work. So easy in an environment like this for us to dismiss our part or for us to minimize our part to play in the body of Christ, what God is doing here. But like a human body, each part has a different function. The hand is different than the eye, is different than the ear, is different than the foot, but each, each part is part of one body. I mean, I believe the body of Christ is like this. One body, one head, which is Christ, amen? One purpose, which remains to seek and to save that which was lost, which was Christ's purpose. But we need connection to the rest of the body. So we got to be so careful for us as individual believers. Let's never let go of the importance of our connection to each other. Amen? That we don't, we don't as the scripture says, that we don't forsake the gathering together as some are in the habit of doing, Paul wrote. I think it was Hebrews. I believe that's still the case here today, thousands of years later. It's so easy to forsake the, ga- the gathering together, the oneness, remembering that we're part of a big body. But you know, also, the body isn't just what's happening here at Anchor, and the body isn't just what's happening for us at Liberty, but it's bigger. It's the church, the capital C church, of which we are just a part. Amen? I think it's a tragedy that in the modern church, we spend so much time attacking each other. Churches criticizing each other. I think there are more casualties in the, free, in, the, in the kingdom from friendly fire than there are from the enemy. In fact, I, say, I would say, my experience of being following Jesus now 30 years, I think there are times in which the enemy just sort of backs away quietly because the church is just doing such a fine job of killing each other, hurting each other, distracting each other from mission that he's like, you know what, I'll go, I'll go take care of something else. I'm going to take a nap. You guys seem to have this covered right now. I wish I was exaggerating. The the scripture says here, growth and health in the body are a result of what? Each part doing its special work, the New Living Translation says, or as each part does its share. As every joint supplies, the New King James Version says. In other words, for anchor to become all God is calling it to be, 
It's going to take all of us. It's going to be an all the believers kind of a movement where each part of us just do our part, bring our special work, where each joint, every part supplies. So, you know, it matters. For instance, it matters that you serve. It does. You know, and we all find ourselves in different seasons and we all have different gifts and talents, but I have an absolute conviction, listen, an absolute conviction that we have everything that we need right here if we would all just do our part. If we would all just bring what we have, it'd be like when there was 5,000 to feed. The disciples are freaking out because Jesus says, give them something to eat. And they bring a little boy's lunch. That's how some of us feel sometimes about our gifts and talents. Or, you know, I travel a lot. I haven't got that much time. Or, you know, it's a busy, I've got much bandwidth. I've got little kids right now. Well, maybe it feels like a little boy's lunch to you. But just remember in Scripture when he submitted that, that Jesus looked to heaven, blessed it, broke it, and gave it out. And at the end, there was 12 baskets left over. In fact, there was more at the end of feeding 5,000 than there was at the beginning that he even gave. In other words, our God is a multiplying God. So it matters that you serve. It matters when we do heart for the house in a moment. It matters that we all feel a part of that, that we are in fact one. It's not about equal giving, but it is about equal sacrifice because I believe as we do this, and that's what we saw in the early churches, they, they sold property, they, they shared, they had in common, and there was no need among them because we have all the resource that we need right here. Heart for the house isn't about, you know, it's not, it's not to be carried by the few, it's carried by the many, amen? It's all of us, it's all of us. It's all of us. The gathering, the early church, it's beautiful. It's diverse in its unity. I think heaven's going to be diverse in every way, generationally diverse. I mean, I want, I want us to build the kind of churches that express on the earth the diversity of the cities that we reach. And that means everything, generations, uh, racially diverse, politically diverse, socioeconomic diversity. In every way, God, let us reflect on earth, your kingdom come, your will being done as it's already done in heaven. This is the beauty of the body of the Christ, united together. All the believers, realizing we are the church. All the believers, realizing we're priests. We have a ministry. And you know what? We're part of one body. Are we going to make our part count? We're going to make it heard. I'm going to pray in a minute. But I felt as I was praying for this service and preparing this last night, really felt to close with this. Um, Anchor needs you. Anchor needs you. Because what you bring is unique, and it's not complete without you. I, I, I was reminded of Nehemiah, one of my favorite characters in the Bible, in a time when Israel's been overrun by the Babylonians and taken into exile, into captivity, and he hears about the walls of Jerusalem that were like literally no st- two stones on top of each other, burn down, burn rubble, and he gets permission from a godless king to return to Jerusalem and build the walls again. The Bible says he goes out by night and surveys the damage and all that's to be done. I can't even imagine how overwhelming it would have been. He's got a ragtag bunch of exiles. It's been 70 years now since those walls were broken down and it's basically just occupied by a few stragglers and wild beasts. And He goes before the people and he has a plan to do what seemed like an impossible thing, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and You know, the scripture records this was their response. And I pray that this is our heart, really to the vision of this church and also specifically to the heart for the house offering today is that this was the people's response. In the New King James, it says their response when he says, like, this is how we're going to do. We're going to organize by families and each one build opposite your house. And this is the people's response. It says, let us rise up 
and build. And then the scripture adds this note. It says, and they put their hand to this good work. I pray that that's a word for what we're stepping into, what we're doing by faith here today, that it would not only be the vision, but it would be the heart of the people responding to the vision. What I love is that it's not just that Nehemiah gave some rousing speech, but the power of it. And by the way, they did what had been undone for 70 years in 52 days. They rebuilt the walls of the city, an impossible feat in 52 days while under constant threat of attack. At one stage, they were building with tools in one hand and a weapon in the other. So dangerous was the task. But their heart responds, let us rise up and build. And then it says, they didn't just, it wasn't just words, but it says they put their hand to this good work. In other words, they rolled up their sleeves. How can we help? Give us a job to do. And God did through them an impossible thing. Amen.